Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today, I'm joined by physicist, author, and NASA technologist, Les Johnson. He serves as principal investigator for NASA's first interplanetary solar sail space missions. Before this, Les was NASA's manager for interstellar propulsion research and later managed the in-space propulsion technology project. Today, we are going to discuss his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. Uh, Les, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. It's always nice when people are interested in your work. At the start of the book, you discuss discovery of exoplanets. Not long ago, you would find exoplanets only in science fiction. But now, exoplanets are an important reality. Talk to us about the discovery of exoplanets. And would you agree that the discovery of exoplanets fundamentally changed our thinking about interstellar travel? Wow, that's that's. there's a lot into that topic in and of itself. Uh, as, I, as I look back on my career at this point, with the vantage point of having been at NASA for about 30 years and studying physics before that, and, and even before that, being a space buff and an amateur astronomer as a, as, a, as a youth, it's hard to imagine that prior to 1992, we had no scientific evidence that there were planets circling stars other than our sun. Now, planetary scientists, if you had asked them, they would have said, of course, there are planets out there. We see in our telescopes these disks of matter that are surrounding some of these stars, protoplanetary disks. And they had no reason to assume that there was anything special about our solar system where we would have planets and another star wouldn't. But when pressed and we said and people would ask, you know, OK, show me data where there's an exoplanet prior to 1992, they would say, well, we don't have that. Uh, because there really wasn't empirical evidence before then. Now, as a science fiction fan and someone who grew up watching the various incarnations of Star Trek uh, and Star Wars, I think we all knew <laughs> that we're going to find planets out there. And there was this implicit assumption, not only in science, but in the culture that that would happen. And sure enough, uh, in the 90s, there was a revolution in instrumentation sensitivity, which is one of the big deals for, for tech for detecting exoplanets. And we, we did. We found evidence that there were planets and big objects circling other stars. And the detection of these planets really exploded with the launch of the Kepler uh, Space Telescope uh, objective mission uh, not that long ago, right? Just over a decade or so ago. And they started, that the data from that mission over time really started populating the database with there are lots of planets out there that are circling other stars. And those planets, most of those that have been detected so far are relatively large. They're not uh, necessarily terrestrial planets like the Earth, although some have been found that are that size. A lot of these planets are much larger, and that's partly due to the detection technologies. I mentioned sensitivity. The various techniques for detecting exoplanets work better if the bigger the planet, the more massive the planet or, or the larger physically that it is. So it's no surprise that we're detecting those first and farther out. It's much harder to detect the presence of planets that are relatively small like our Earth. Although, you know, in, in everyday experience, we don't think of the Earth as being that small, but in terms of planets, it, it really is. So that, that's kind of the, in a nutshell, and the Kepler, what was really interesting about Kepler is how they found these planets. Uh, it was not a mission to go and, and actually look at an exoplanet. It was to try to get evidence that there were these planets circling these other stars. And it did that uh, by basically taking its optics and staring at different stars and looking at the brightness of those stars. And every now and then, 
And, on, and, and what's really important here is if it happened on a regular basis, there would be a slight dimming of the light from that star. And if it happened on a regular period, on the order of weeks, months, or years, then you could infer that there was something passing between you and that star on a regular basis, which would be a planet. And from the period of that, you could determine how far it was from the star. And by the amount of light that it dimmed the signal from the star, you could get an inference about how large it was. And so the first exoplanet detections, uh, a lot of them were done by this method. There are other methods to do it, but it was pretty exciting time. And now the number is well over 5,000, approaching 6,000 known exoplanets. And that's all in our little part of the galaxy. If you look at the galaxy as a whole, there are probably you know, hundreds of billions of planets out there just based on the statistics. So with regard to, to uh, what this meant for people thinking about interstellar travel, it, it rekindled the question, wow, we're finding all these planets can we ever go? And that's what I try to address in my book. Does nature say, you know, okay, with some work you can go or just forget about it. <laughs> You're never going to make it. So don't even try. Right. And, and fortunately the answer is it's possible. In fact, it's possible in many different ways. We are just not ready to undertake it technologically. And we are going to discuss um, various techniques, various ideas, various approaches that are being uh, discussed, that are being developed to achieve this goal of uh, interstellar travel. Now, in the book, you then discuss a number of precursors that we need to take into consideration before we build ships that can travel beyond the solar system and before we embark on an interstellar journey, we need to take into consideration these uh, precursors. You talk about solar systems escape velocity uh, and you suggest that we need a better understanding of interstellar space, interstellar medium. Talk to us about some of these precursors that you discuss uh, uh, in the book. Certainly, I'll be glad to do that. Well, I mean, if you look at the history of space exploration, we, we have done lots of precursors at every stage of the, of the development. Uh, before we sent people or animals into space, we sent our robotic spacecraft to make sure that we understood we had the instruments and the systems that would work and that we could support people. Uh, before we sent people even, uh, the Russians sent a dog named Laika. Uh, we sent uh, Abel and Baker, uh, little monkeys, up to, uh, to see what happened in space. And then we sent people. Now, as we were preparing to the go to the moon, we sent our robotic probes to go to the moon. The first few crashed into the moon. So it's a good thing they didn't have people. And then we followed up by sending human beings to explore the surface of the moon. The thinking for Mars exploration is the same. We're sending our robotic spacecraft there now to characterize it, shake down the capability to do it, and we'll eventually send people. And I would expect that an interstellar voyage would be the same for many good reasons, to reduce risks and just get a lay of the land before you risk life on, on such a trip. Now, when it comes to precursors even before that, before we send a robotic probe to another star, we have to think about what's between here and that star. Because when we look out into space, uh, you, you think of space as being big and empty. And yeah, it mostly is, but it's not a perfect vacuum. Uh, in our solar system, there, is, there are little micrometeorites zipping about things the size, uh, if you eat your vegetables, the size of a pea, traveling at 18 to 23 kilometers per second, really fast. And if those hit a spacecraft, it's a bad day for the spacecraft. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. There's only been one spacecraft 
that I'm aware of in the history of interplanetary spacecraft beyond Earth orbit, where there's debris, which you don't have in interplanetary space, where one of these micrometeorites hit a spacecraft doing enough damage that it affected the mission. So fortunately, distances to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, we're able to send robotic spacecraft out there with an extremely low probability that it'll get hit by this. They do get hit by dust. And the dust is just like you would expect, little tiny grains of sand also moving very rapidly. And the spacecraft will hit them and it'll have the effect of slight damage to the surface, erosion, that kind of thing. But we have to understand that in our solar system as we build spacecraft to travel further and further out, because the further you go through this environment, uh, the higher the probability that you'll eventually hit something, right? Whether it be dust or one of these micrometeorites. Now, the same thing happens in interstellar space. It's mostly empty between here and the nearest stars, but it's not completely empty. Uh, not only are you going to have some of these inter interstellar dust grains, not so many of those, but there are some, but the space radiation environment out there is not insignificant. Um, the solar system is bombarded by galactic cosmic rays. These are high energy um, heavy atom nuclei uh, put out by supernova, exploding stars, accelerated by interstellar magnetic fields to extremely high speeds, close to the speed of light. And these come zooming into the solar system and uh, they, they, are, they affect crew health when we go to Mars, when we go to, to, uh, to the moon. It's not immediately life-threatening, but as these big iron atoms or carbon atoms that have been traveling through space at really high speeds interact with your body, they can ionize atoms in your body, cause cancers, that kind of thing. So it's, it's an issue. It's not a huge one. I don't want to overplay it, but it's a long-term concern. And it also affects the lifetime of the radiation, uh, the electronics. Uh, electronics on spacecraft degrade over time from being exposed to this radiation. So when you look at the beyond the solar system, where most of that is not present, interstellar space, we think, has, you know, hydrogen atoms, you know, one per cubic meter, maybe, even out there. And hydrogen atoms, you're thinking, wow, that's not much. I mean, you've got huge volumes of space before you get enough hydrogen atoms to be something that you could even see, Right. But you're traveling through immense distances at very high speeds where you're encountering these. And in terms of velocity, if your spacecraft's going a significant fraction of the speed of light, as you encounter one of these relatively stationed hydrogen atoms, it's the same as going to a particle accelerator like CERN in Europe or something and having a proton accelerated to really high speeds to hit you, right? And that can cause radiation damage. So what we need to do is we need to have better telescopes uh, to look along the line of sight between here and the stars we want to go visit, get an idea of how much dust and dirt might be there, because again, the light from the star will be affected by this amount of dust and dirt. And we probably need to send some robotic spacecraft beyond Earth's and the sun's influence to take measurements as far as we can along the way so that we can better understand what this environment is like and to, to develop our spacecraft to be resistant to that. I actually find it very interesting in the book that uh, you give examples of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 and then New Horizon spacecraft, that as these spacecrafts are going further and further, we are learning few new things. So this then confirms what you are just saying, that we need to understand the interstellar medium a bit better. Maybe there are still some surprises out there. 
Oh, I'm sure there are going to be surprises. <laughs> That's the history of science and the history of nature. Um, you know, the best laid plans work well until they encounter the unknown. But if you haven't planned for it or if it's not something you're expecting, it could be dangerous, mission ending, or it could just be an intellectual curiosity. Uh, but in either case, you learn more about nature, the way the universe works, and that's why we explore in large part is to find those things out. Now, the the interesting thing about Voyager is it's been flying since 1977, and it has a very robust power pack, power source. It uh, uses what's called a, a radio thermoisotope generator. Basically, it's got some plutonium, and as the plutonium decays, uh, it produces a little bit of heat to keep the spacecraft warm, and there's a way to turn some of that waste heat into electrical power to keep the spacecraft working. But the amount of plutonium-generated heat and power is declining as it's been flying for a while, and, and Voyagers will probably go silent sometime within the next decade or so, which will be very sad because they've, they've really exceeded uh, all of their design specs and have just been doing some great, great stuff. Uh, New Horizons is... Uh, uh, more recently launched, it's flown by Pluto. Uh, it's it's gone uh, by a couple other, uh, well, at least one other uh, object in the, uh, yeah, it's the Kuiper Belt, and and it's on its way. And they're looking for other things to look at. Uh, the chances of our interstellar probe hitting one of these big, you know, dwarf planets is very low. But again, all the data we can get about the inner, the uh, dust density, the particle density, and all that, and the outer solar system, which we would have to fly through, the more likely it is our spacecraft will survive the voyage. And it is important to understand the scale in terms of space and in terms of time. Sometimes it is difficult to imagine the scale correctly. We will have to adopt new structural design approaches. We will have to develop new type of materials. We will have to develop better communication techniques. So are we conducting active research to address all these challenges? Well, the, the world's space agencies and some private investments are addressing these challenges, but we are woefully early on the scale of technology readiness before we can under, under, undertake an interstellar voyage. For example, um, today we're, we're looking, I, my specialty is advanced propulsion, and, and some of the propulsion systems we're starting to field for use in the solar system have the capability in the long term to become applicable to taking a spacecraft to another star, although that's not what their objective is today. Um, communications, yes. Uh, we're, we're learning how to do optical communications to get higher bandwidth uh, communications in the solar system. There are people who have done mostly academic papers at this point talking about, well, if you did have a probe at Alpha Centauri, how would you get the data back? How could you do that? And they talk about different techniques that involve using optical sensors here on Earth that might be really, really big because you'd be uh, collecting you know, very few uh, bits of data from incredible distances that probably would have diverged quite a bit over their travel between those distances. And then there are really innovative ideas that are very far out that might use something called the solar gravity lens. And uh, th that's one of my favorites for um, after we have established a settlement or have a permanent presence at another star, what we would do is we would take advantage of the fact that stars bend space-time. And this is, this, is, this is hard to get your mind around. Um, and, and actually have a focus of, of radio waves and light uh, because of that bent space-time around a star. And the best way to think about this is when you're a kid, 
if you were um, like me and I had a magnifying glass and I would go outside and I'd find ants and I would kill those poor ants by, by sunlight burning those poor little ants, right? Um, pretty cruel, I guess. Uh, today's standards, I might be reported. Pretty somebody, cruel, but, yeah. But I did it. You know, I learned a lot about optics at that point and all about focusing light and what, what difference it is for a focus and the focal distance of the lens, right? So there's some science to be learned there. But if you think of the sun as being essentially a big lens, um, there is a focus. And uh, Dr. Claudio Maconi in Italy uh, published something that he called the galactic internet. And I love this idea. And that is if we ever get, uh, like I say, uh, some kind of spacecraft orbiting or station keeping at a nearby star, you go to that star's gravity focus and put a spacecraft with a radio. And you have one on the other side at our sun's gravity focus uh, from the direction of that star. And you essentially can have high bandwidth radio communications for a few tens or hundreds of watts as opposed to kilowatts or megawatts of power that you would require if you didn't have that unique characteristic of the star. So I would encourage your listeners to go look up the Galactic Internet by Dr. Claudio Maconi or uh, Solar Gravity Lens mission because there are astronomical uses for this as precursors to actually get some pictures of the destination planet that we're going to, which are really exciting and something we might actually achieve within the lifetime of some of the listeners. This nicely brings us to my next question. Developing innovative propulsion system is perhaps the most important aspect of developing ships for interstellar travel, and your research has focused on this? Well, my research has been on advanced propulsion for uh, in the solar system and for a while for looking at interstellar travel. Now, I, I would not say it's the most important because uh, the, almost all of them are equally important, but it is the first of the enabling technologies. It wouldn't do you much good to have a communication system that would work from Proxima Centauri if you can't get there, right? And so people tend to think of the propulsion system as being the first challenge that has to be solved. And once you solve that problem, then you can start working on what are probably equally hard problems of power, communications, and if you're talking about people, life support, and all those other things. But they really don't won't come first. What has to come first is, can you get there? All right? And I really want to set the stage for listeners about what I mean by there. <laughs> um, the distances in space are deceivingly large. In your everyday life and my everyday life, I, I don't know. Have you been to the United States very often? No, not yet. Not yet. People who come from Europe have a very different view of distance than we do in the U.S. And I have many colleagues, really smart, intelligent, bright people who will have a week in the U.S. and say, oh, I'm going to be in New York. I'd like to go see L.A. <laughs> well, that's great. You're going to take on an airplane a whole day to get there. You're not going to fly in the morning, get there in a couple hours and go out and see L.A. And if you're talking about driving, driving every day for a week, you may not get there depending on what the weather is. It's a big <laughs> country, right? And so it, it, people laugh at Americans because we tend to describe distances uh, in terms of hours, because we think about the interstate highway system and traveling at 70 miles per hour with our archaic use units of measurement and how long it takes us to go these distances, right? So it, it's, it's just a different scale of things. That drove home to me recently when I took my first trip to Israel. 
I, I, everything I read about in the Bible, in my American mind, I'm placing at vast distances from where I am on the scale of North America, when in fact, Israel's the size of New Jersey. And all these things I've read about all my life are like right close together, like almost in my backyard. So we all have this distorted view of distance based on our experiential lives, right? And it's the same for interplanetary and interstellar travel. It's so bad, in fact, that astronomers for interplanetary travel had to come up with their own units of measurement because talking in miles or kilometers or hundreds of miles or thousands or, or millions, people's eyes just blurred over. For the average person, you know, a million kilometers is about the same as a billion kilometers, right? They don't really think, well, it's a thousand times a million. They don't think that way. So astronomers came up with something called the astronomical unit. And it's very simple. The distance from the Earth to the Sun is about, on average, uh, using English units, because that's the way I think, 93 million miles. So they call that one astronomical unit, one AU. That's great. On that scale, Jupiter's at about five astronomical units. Okay, five years trip time with a spacecraft, about five astronomical units. Okay, great. Uh, Neptune's out at about 30 astronomical units. It takes well over a decade to get a spacecraft to cover that. So 30 astronomical units is 30 times 93 million miles. Ugh. That's a lot. I have no idea what that means, right? It's just hard to experientially just describe that. Um, typical for being an American, I drive a lot of places. My car is 15 years old and has about a quarter of a million miles on it. Well, that's about the distance to the moon. So I experientially can say over 15 years, I've driven to the moon. <laughs> okay, so I have this, <laughs> you know, this idea of what the distance is. So here I'm going to take a different scale now to talk about interstellar distances. Let's take my astronomical unit, the astronomer's astronomical unit, and I'm going to call it uh, one of my feet. My shoes are about 12 inches long, one U.S. foot. And so there you go. My heel is the sun. The tip of my toe is the earth. One foot, one astronomical unit. Neptune, 30 feet away. If we were in a classroom, typical college classroom, I would be on the stage. Neptune would be at the back wall, right? So it's experientially, you can kind of see, okay, on that scale, that's how much farther away it is. On that scale, the nearest star, okay, is 50 miles away. Wow. Wow. 50 miles times 5,280 feet times 93 million miles. Oh my gosh. That is far away. And that's the closest star. So when we're talking about those distances, we have to start thinking about traveling there at really high speeds. People say, can we send a probe to another star? Yes. We've got a couple on their way. You mentioned earlier yeah. Voyager. The Voyager spacecraft were launched in 1977. If they were pointed at the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, which they're not, they would reach there in about 70,000 years. Okay. I don't call that practical interstellar travel. That's not practical, but it is interstellar travel. All right. So when we're talking about going in the propulsion systems to go those distances, we have to find things that will let us go much faster than a rocket. And in the book, I describe all the different kinds of rockets and how they work. And the bottom line is, if we think of a rocket as something that carries fuel, 
and accelerates the fuel to some high speed to throw it out one side so that the rocket recoils and goes in the other side, other direction. Newton's law, conservation of momentum. Then uh, you can have chemical rockets, which is the main the workhorse of what we do today. And they derive their energy to accelerate the propellant through the uh, making of chemical bonds. Um, when you look at uh, old footage of the space shuttle launching and all that big white plume of smoke that comes up, it's not smoke, it's steam. It's liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, combusting, makes water vapor. It's steam. And then the solid rocket motors, they had smoke, but the main engines of the shuttle were non-polluting. They just put out steam, okay? Hmm. So chemicals, whatever they are, have a limit, a theoretical limit as to how much energy you can get out of chemistry. And we learned that, unfortunately, during World War II with the development of the atomic bomb, that you can get more energy from splitting atoms, like uranium. And in a nuclear power plant, which produces electrical power, um, they have a controlled reaction where they, they bring the, the uh, uranium close together. It's got a specific enrichment. That means radioactive uranium in it. When they get to the critical distance, they start getting neutrons flying around, which causes atoms to split, which makes more neutrons, releases a lot of heat. Well, you can make rockets that work really well from that heat. And, and people have talked about this since the 60s. There are various efforts underway now in the U.S. and in Russia and probably in China uh, to develop nuclear rockets. Now, these rockets wouldn't launch from the ground. They would be built to go take the materials into space and you'd fire them up in space for environmental reasons. Um, but they produce a lot more thrust than a chemical rocket does. And the way I would describe that is by the, what's called their specific impulse, uh, ISP. It has units of seconds, which is an arcane derivative. Don't worry about it. Think of it as kilometers per gallon, okay? Um, it's an efficiency measure. It's, it's basically saying how much thrust you can get out of every kilogram of fuel. Now, chemical rockets have an efficiency of about three or 400 seconds. Nuclear rockets can get up to 1,000 seconds. So they're two and a half times better. That's great, okay? We need them for Mars. I think we got to have people to go to Mars with these things. Don't have to, but it makes the trip a lot easier. Faster, less fuel that you have to use. But it doesn't do much good for interstellar travel. So now we've taken our 70,000 years and we've knocked it down to maybe to 35,000 years. <laughs> I don't consider that practical yet. That's still not in the range of, of practical. Now, as you step up in energy and you think about what's the next most energetic process, that would be what scientists have been trying to do for decades, nuclear fusion. Yeah. And fusion is not breaking of atoms, it's fusing of atoms. It's what the sun does at its core to produce the heat and light that keeps us alive and keeps the sun shining. And you can reproduce those conditions in the laboratory, but right now it takes big buildings, lots of energy input, and only recently have they gotten more energy out than they put in to get the fusion reaction going. It's usually hydrogen fused into helium. Well, that's great. It should be possible we're finally to the point where we're getting a little bit more energy than we get out. A few decades from now, hopefully not longer than that, we might be having compact, relatively compact, fusion power plants producing green energy for the planet, which would be fantastic. But you can use that for space. If you miniaturize it yet further so you can put it on a rocket, 
which again, the physics says you ought to be able to do, but the engineers will say, I have no idea how to do it yet. Then you could get the energy in your exhaust, in your rocket, that could reduce that trip time down perhaps to a thousand years or so. And that's really what I think is the upper limit of a credible trip time. Now, if I can digress for a minute, the reason I, I say that is because if you look at human history, we have records going back a thousand years, 2000 years. So if someone were to launch a probe to another star and then quit, stop doing it, a thousand years from now, somebody would be realizing, hey, that data should be coming back around now. Do you remember this old thing called radio? <laughs> Let's turn that on, right? So you could conceive of a future us getting the data, right? But the other thing is, uh, people ask me, well, that's a huge commitment across you know, many generations. Who would be willing to do that? And my answer is, we have historical examples where things like that have been done already. Consider the great cathedrals of Europe uh, or uh, other uh, places of worship in the Middle East, uh, the, the Great Wall of China, uh, many of these things were projects begun by one generation and not completed until many generations later. They had vision. They were passionate. They were committed. Um, uh, I, I can't imagine going to my you know, local church here in uh, Madison, Alabama, and saying, "I want you know, we want to construct a new building. Here's my 300-year plan." <laughs> Not going to fly, <laughs> but it did fly. It did happen, and if we set our mind to it, we can do things like that. So, a thousand years, we're there if we can get fusion, but we can do better than that with rockets. Um, there is a, a the, the ultimate rocket would use antimatter. And a lot of people think, okay, you're getting into science fiction. Well, yes and no. Antimatter is real. It is created uh, all the time, actually. If you basically, let me describe what antimatter is, and then I'll tell you where it's created, and I'll tell you a surprising place where you can find some. Um, in nature, there are particles that look and behave just like a proton. The, in the core of an atom, hydrogen atom, um, they have the same mass, basically look and behave the same under certain circumstances. But instead of being a plus one charge, like a proton is, they have a minus one charge. And they're called antiprotons. And as a corollary, electrons, well, there are anti-electrons. Things that look just like an electron are produced in similar ways that you might produce an electron, but instead of a negative one charge, they have a plus one charge. So it is an opposite to an electron, an anti-electron, or in this case, it's called a positron. And then you have the anti-proton. What's interesting about that is when you bring a proton and an anti-proton together, it becomes Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, which says there's an equivalence between mass and energy, and that you can describe mass in terms of its energy content, and you can de describe energy in terms of what it would look like if it were turned into mass. That's E equals mc squared. And so you take this proton and antiproton, 
which together have mass. And as soon as they're brought together, they annihilate, which is, means they go boom. <laughs> and you get all kinds of secondary radiation, gamma rays, electrons, positrons, muons, all this stuff comes out. And if you add up all the energy of these secondary products, it equals the mass energy that's in these, these proton and antiproton. What that means is if you can store antimatter, and you can in a perfect vacuum, so there's no proton in there for it to hit, and in magnetic fields, because charged particles can be contained by magnetic fields, you've heard of magnetic bottles perhaps, you ought to be able to produce antimatter, extract little bits at a time to interact with normal matter to release the energy to be your thrust for your propulsion system. If you can do that, we have trip times down to 100 years or so to another star. Now we're talking. But there are risks. With fission and fusion reactors, you worry about some critical malfunction and it going boom, right? <clears throat> but it's complex malfunction. It's going to take time. There are indicators. It's not catastrophic immediately. With protons and antiprotons, if you have a failure of your magnetic bottle and those get released at once, it's an immediate boom, mission over, everybody's dead, right? And the example I like to use is if you do the math and you know someone in your life who still sews with a sewing machine, you remember what a thimble is, right? It goes over your finger to keep you from hurting your finger as you're sewing with different things. A thimble full of antimatter would basically destroy London. Okay, so you don't want to be pouring antimatter out on the ground. So this is the kind of thing that we would probably never capture and develop on Earth. We would do it in deep space in an isolated facility, probably using the energy of the sun to create it to build our spacecraft. Now, the little fun fact about antimatter. Antimatter is also produced in some radioactive decay processes. So some atoms are naturally radioactive, which means they give off uh, gamma rays, electrons, and over time, they will just spontaneously themselves transmute into other elements with less energy. Uh, you've heard of radon. Radon is produced by the radioactive decay of uranium in the soil. So you get a little bit of, get a little bit of radiation emitted. The soil around your listeners is mildly radioactive. It's there. And so where I'm going with this is, and this is kind of a fun fact, that if you have a banana in your home, uh, there is an isotope of potassium that is common in the soil where most bananas, bananas are grown that actually uh, is slightly radioactive. And over time, that potassium is going to give off a gamma ray. I mean, a, a, uh, an antimatter particle, an antiproton. And it'll immediately annihilate in your banana and you'll never detect it. The same is, is true of um, Brazil nuts. Uh, they have uh, are naturally slightly radioactive. That doesn't mean you don't eat them. I mean, radiation is a part of our background, and it's an insignificant amount. But if you're a scientist and you want to study these things, it's detectable. So it's kind of a fun fact. So if you, if you want to talk about antimatter and you're eating a banana, you can say, I'm probably eating something that releases antimatter as I have my <laughs> breakfast here. So anyway, a long answer to the ultimate rocket. Uh, there are other ways, too, beyond rockets, but that really is where rockets take you. Thank you very much for these fantastic details about uh, uh, rockets based on nuclear fusion and antimatter uh, technologies. Uh, now, let us look at uh, propulsion technologies based on ideas such as solar sails and uh, laser beamed uh, energy. Uh, tell us about these uh, innovative ideas. 
That's those are my favorites. Those those are, in my opinion, are the leading candidates for our first robotic missions to the stars. And the reason for that is uh, when you talk about a rocket, you have to carry fuel, lots of fuel, and that's very heavy. And for every extra kilogram of fuel you add to get a little bit more kick out of your propulsion system as you're flying, that's much that much more mass you have to move at the beginning of your voyage. And there's this little thing called the rocket equation which uh, really gets you toward the end. And that's why rockets end up being impractical because as you add uh, more and more fuel, you have more and more mass to move, which means you need more fuel to move more and more mass. And finally it gets to the point where you can't add enough fuel efficiently enough to get the, the extra boost you need to carry that fuel at the beginning and it won't work. That's one of the reasons chemical rockets can't, can't get us to the stars any faster. It's not just a matter of loading up more fuel. It just becomes impractical and it won't work. Yeah. But if you take away the requirement to carry your fuel and you use offboard energy, then perhaps you can have a lighter spacecraft, which means you can accelerate it more easily to get to the stars. Now, in our solar system, we're developing solar sails. And I say we, there's a worldwide community doing this. There'll actually be a symposium. The International Space Sales Symposium is in New York City this June, June of 2023. And the world's experts in solar sales will get together, present papers, and basically nerd out talking about how we all want to build solar sales for the future. And it's, it's pretty exciting. But we're not really talking about interstellar that much yet. There is a group that is, and I can, I can talk about that. But here's how a sale works. Imagine you, the light in the room where you are now. If you're inside, the lights in the room are shining on you, reflecting off of you. Um, if you're outside in bright sunlight, light's reflecting from you and reflecting off. Light's made up of photons, little particles of light. And as scientists looked at these little particles of light, they realized that they all have momentum. Uh, photons, you famously have heard, well, they don't have mass. Well, they don't have rest mass, but they do have momentum, which means as light reflects from you, goes into the camera, goes into the eyes of the person you know, that you're talking to, uh, goes off yeah. from you and just, you know, into the room as the light reflects from you, it's pushing on you. It's a very small push, but it's measurable. And so if you go into space and you deploy a large lightweight reflector, something that looks like aluminum foil, only it's much thinner and tougher, that reflects light in the visible, which is where our sun is very efficient at putting out light. That's why we see it. Um, that sail will recoil from the photons reflecting from it and will start accelerating. And you can think of this just like a sail on a sailboat on a lake or on the ocean. The, the canvas is in the air and the wind particles reflect from the sail and they lose some energy and they push the sail, which is attached to your ship by a mast and it drags your ship with it. So we see this in action, not with light, but with wind all the time. In space, with these sails, when you're out of the atmosphere and away from gravity, the same thing happens. And the nice thing is, the sun is always on. So if you're flying near the sun, you can accelerate to very, very high speeds over time. It's a very low acceleration. It's on the order of millimeters per second squared. Very, very slow. Low. But over time it can take a spacecraft faster than any chemical rocket you could have put on that spacecraft. It's not going to win a sprint with a chemical rocket. You could have two spacecraft, one packed with a sail of a certain volume that deploys out and becomes a big lightweight reflective sail. 
And you could take that same volume and fill it up with propellant and a chemical rocket, and you can have a race. You put them side by side in space and count down and say, go. Well, that chemical rocket's going to burn, and that spacecraft's going to be out of sight in a few seconds. And a few seconds after that, it's going to run out of fuel. And it will have reached the fastest speed it's ever going to get, and that's as fast as it'll go forever. The sailcraft, you're going to look and say, well, this race isn't going to be much of a rate. This thing hasn't moved. You go back the next day, it's moved a little bit. The next day, it's moved yet more. And after maybe a few weeks or a month, it's going to be going faster than that rocket, which had run out of fuel and will keep accelerated as long as there's light to reflect from it. Now, that's great for inner solar system missions. And that's why I've devoted a lot of my career uh, to developing these. Um, because scientists have a lot of use for these propulsion systems that can take robotic spacecraft and never run out of fuel. This is talked about, you know, kilometers per, per, per uh, liter, not gallon. I mixed measurements earlier. Kilometers per liter. Well, this is like infinite <laughs> kilometers, right? But the problem is the sun gets dim as you move away from it. You don't get as much sunlight. You get out to Jupiter, you only have about 4% of the sunlight that you do on, at the Earth. So what you do is you put big lasers out there to continue accelerating the sail to higher and higher speeds. And you could theoretically get one of these sails going up to 20 or 30% the speed of light. And when you're going that fast, considering that the nearest star is about 4.3 light years away, which means it takes light traveling at the speed of light, uh, that much time to get there. If you're traveling, I don't know, 10% the speed of light, We've got a trip time of a few, you know, four decades, four and a half decades, which is great. So I, I think these laser sails ultimately will be how we send our first robotic probes to the stars. And uh, I just want you to give us a bit more on this point, laser beamed energy. Are you suggesting that there will be outposts out there along the path of the journey where this laser beamed energy will be available that would keep pushing solar sails? It could be. There, there are various ideas. Um, one, one that's being explored by a, a, an organization uh, called the Breakthrough Starshot, which made a lot of news a few years ago. It's funded by uh, some Silicon Valley types who uh, really want to enable interstellar travel. And so they're investing millions of dollars in research for a laser sail. But they would, they would build a very small sail, uh, something that might be just a few square meters, and hit it with an extremely powerful laser, more powerful than any laser we can build today, gigawatt-class laser, uh, that would be on the Earth and accelerate it to 10 to 20% the speed of light extremely quickly. The problem with that is most materials that I can imagine that I've seen hit with that kind of laser energy won't accelerate and move fast. They'll just be burned up because um, that, that's a lot of heat energy to displace very quickly. And we don't have many materials that can do that. But that's okay. I mean, we can work on it. Nature says we ought to be able to find something to make that work. And they're working on it. They have some candidates. Um, the other approach is to use a much larger sail and uh, use less energy-dense lasers, spread the beam out over a bigger area so you don't have the thermal problems, but you still have all that light falling on the sail, but it's over a larger area so you don't get the spot heating to accelerate the sail. And for that, you would have a, a station, as you had mentioned, in space, most likely, a couple of them, 
uh, moving out into the solar system positioned so that as the sail comes by and the other beam, even lasers diverge with distance, they spread out and get weaker. That as it travels by and the beam from the previous laser is too weak to keep pushing it much, that laser kicks in and and accelerates it even more. So I could see a network of these lasers in the solar system to keep accelerating these probes onto another star. Fantastic idea. There is a view out there that structures in space, such as black holes, wormholes, will assist us when we travel through interstellar space. Uh, and there is a movie about that, and there are many science fiction theories out there. Uh, how can these structures help us uh, achieving the goal of uh, interstellar travel? Talk to us about that. Well, this is this is where we get beyond, in my opinion, uh, most of what I've talked about so far is is good solid physics. Yeah. Uh, we know the laws of nature are going to let us do this, but we don't have a clue how to engineer it. <laughs> so we've yeah. got to learn yeah. in incremental steps about how to take those laws of nature and bend them to our will so that we can do these things. Now, when you talk about wormholes, black holes, those kinds of things, those are real astronomical objects that are out there, right? Uh, a star that has so much mass that it, that it, it, it gets so dense that space-time has bent so much that not even light can escape, right? And, and if you go near what's called the event horizon of a black hole, uh, you, you can't escape. You get pulled into it and you, go, you become part of the mass of that star of that black hole. Theoretical physicists, of which I am not one, so I don't want to pretend to be one, but I've, I've read about this, uh, have, have come up with theories that these black holes can warp space-time so much that they might enable you to travel from point A to point B that's extremely far away um, as if it were right there, that space-time is bent like a, piece, a sheet of paper with, that's folded in half and two points touch each other. And, and sometimes they call that, that passage between a black hole and maybe another one a wormhole. And lots of interesting math, lots of interesting theories that these might actually exist. And that's wonderful. Maybe they do. Maybe we could traverse a wormhole to get somewhere. But the practical side of that is, um, A, you'd have to survive the gravitational stresses of being doing that, and it would probably rip any ship apart because we don't know how to shield anything from the effects of gravity. And that's just physics. That's not a lack of engineering. There's no physical reality that we can think of that shields gravity. We don't, we don't think nature allows that. And then you have the problem of where they are. There are none nearby thankfully, or the earth wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So we have to travel to the nearest black hole, which is probably many light years, tens of light years or hundreds of light years away. And in order to do that, we have to develop these other methods of interstellar travel just to get to the wormhole. So I'm thinking, you know, if I wrote a sequel to Traveler's Guide to the Stars, which is all about interstellar travel, I think the wormholes might be the intergalactic travel. <laughs> uh, after you've settled the whole, you know, the whole uh, Milky Way galaxy, you can think about traversing these black holes to go somewhere else. But that's just my speculation. I, I really don't know. Uh, this nicely brings us to my next question. You have written science fiction as well. Uh, you suggest that science fiction could be an effective tool to imagine future technologies. Well, the beauty of science fiction, not just what I write, but what I love to read, is character-based stories about people in situations that are enabled by different scientific breakthroughs or different engineering challenges or different socioeconomic circumstances, political, social, psychological, brought about by technological change. 
And we live in science fiction today. I mean, our lives today are the science fiction of H.G. Wells, right? Think, things that fly in the air, rockets to the moon, Jules Verne, you know, I mean, we are living in yesterday's science fiction novel. And I think science fiction enables us to look at what the moral, ethical challenges and implications are of some of these technologies and, and how they will affect future generations of us, right? And so I think science fiction is extremely useful if it's well done, grounded in real science. But most importantly, you read science fiction to be entertained. So it's got to be a good story with believable people in circumstances that are believable enabled by these technological changes. And one of those that's most popular is science fictional space travel. And uh, it, it's wonderful. The problem is, I think it has set unrealistic expectations yeah. for what we can achieve True. in space travel based on what we currently know about how the universe works. Um, I would love to have the Star, uh, the Star Trek warp drive and be able to travel, you know, the speed of light, 10 times the speed of light, 100 times, 1,000 times the speed of light and travel the galaxy. But it does not appear based on what we currently understand about physics. And we could be very wrong. In fact, we probably are very wrong. Hmm. But based on what we currently understand, that kind of travel that rapidly just isn't possible. So I think a lot of people frustrated by the relatively slow pace of space exploration had their expectations set artificially high by reading the entertaining stuff that I like to read and write, uh, which is stories of interstellar travel. Les, no discussion on the topic of space is complete without talking about the possibility of life out there. What is your view on the question that are we alone? Is there life out there? Well, I, I am a, a person of faith. I am a Christian. And I admittedly have a Christian worldview, and I would not for an instant presuppose that my creator uh, couldn't or wouldn't create life elsewhere beyond planet Earth. So given that as a, as a for statement, I can say that uh, if I take a uh, naturalist worldview, which is that life evolved on Earth and came from more primitive life, uh, they really haven't answered yet the question of biogenesis, but that's a whole other other discussion. Um, then you know you 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 have to conclude that if it happened here, it could happen somewhere else, right? But I think what people underestimate, just like we underestimate deep space distances, is we underestimate deep time. Um, our our lifespan is productive lifespan seventy to eighty years. Some people live to be 120. Great. They are extremely far outliers, right? Um, and the Earth is four and a half billion years old. That's four and a half thousand million years old, okay? That's an unima that's unimaginable to me as the distances we talked about earlier. And the universe, based on what we see, is about 13 billion billion years old. So in that vastness of the universe and over that time, even from a purely naturalistic point of view, it is inconceivable that life did not arise elsewhere. Now, here's where it gets difficult. Technological and sentient self-aware life on earth has only us humans 
in our form where we use tools, make things. I'm not talking about the sentience of my dog. I think my dog is somewhat sentient. Dog is not stupid, right? But the dog is not making computers and probably never will, okay? Um, that's only happened relatively recently. We've only had civilization for six, seven, eight thousand years. We've only had technology that could conceive of space flight for a few hundred years, all right? So when people tell me that these uh, aerial anomalies, flying saucers, UFOs, whatever, are aliens visiting us, I think not likely. And the reason for that is all the sightings we have look like technologies that might be within our grasp to build within the next hundred years. And as I look at the development of life on Earth and the history and the accidents, if it weren't for the dinosaurs being wiped out, we wouldn't be here because the mammals wouldn't have arisen, right? And, and, and all those historical things that led to where we are, what is the likelihood of another intelligent tool-using species reaching a level of advancement that is something that we would be comparable to where we are within 100 years or 200 years or even 1,000 years and happen to be here right now? while we're here. I think it's so close to zero that you just call it zero. So do I think there's life out there? Probably. Could very well be. Is there intelligent tool using life like us? Maybe, probably. But are they in existence at the same time in deep time as us? I would say highly unlikely. And challenging the crossing of deep time, in other words, like us at the same time, and able to cross those vast distances at that time, again, I think it's close to zero. Um, I wrote an essay for my uh, science fiction publisher, Bayon Books, called The Aliens Are Not Among Us. I wrote it over 10 years ago, and I still stand by that. Uh, and it describes some of the thoughts that I just described. So as much as I'd love to believe we're being visited, and you go back to the, the movie, uh, The Earth Stood Still, the original, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, um, you know, I would love that that were the case, but I, I am extremely skeptical, and I think it's an almost zero probability. I would love to be proven wrong. <laughs> Fantastic. Very good and very detailed description. Les, we are discussing your book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is much more in the book. However, is there anything else that you think we should touch upon before we close this discussion? There is. And, and I think it's, it's more of the ethical, moral side of space exploration and space development. Um, I, I think in our society today, we are much more acutely aware of the mistakes of our ancestors and the assumptions they made about peoples of the world and resources and how vast the world is, and it's not nearly as vast as we used to think it was. And, and I, I get questioned about, you know, is it ethics, ethical and moral to expand life beyond Earth into the universe? I mean, we've tra we're trashing the Earth. Well, my answer is we, we know we're trashing the Earth, and we're making progress toward reversing that. And I think we can and we will. And that's, a, again, a whole topic for another discussion. But I think life is inherently good. The universe is a deadly, dark, dangerous place. Uh, when you get beyond Earth, it is not suitable for life. Uh, the moon is a very dangerous place. There's more radiation on the moon in a day than we could hope to do with all of our atomic bombs if we even tried, right? And I, I think what we need to realize is that life is good. Intelligent life is better. And it's very fragile on this wonderful uh, nest that we live on called Earth. And I think if we expand into the universe and spread life, it's a morally good thing. Uh, the love you feel for your children, 
your parents, your friends, companionship, great works of art, that all testifies to the goodness of life, uh, in addition to just the biological world around us. And we need to protect and preserve that and spread it far and wide so that it doesn't perish here on this world if something happens to this world. And we have to do it in a way that is more ethical than our ancestors have done uh, with regard to exploration. Should we go to another planet and we find that there's primitive biological life, I think we ought to invoke the Star Trek Prime Directive and don't interfere with it. But if we go to another world that has none of that and it's otherwise dead, why shouldn't we bring life to it and make it alive and bring the goodness of life on Earth to the rest of the universe? So um, I, I think it's a moral imperative that we expand beyond Earth and we go to the stars. Les Johnson, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thanks for having me, and I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, and goodbye.